Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and colleague, Derek Davison, and we are excited to be welcoming to the program my good buddy, Michael Brennis. Mike is the interim director of the Brady Johnson Program in Grand Strategy and lecturer in history at Yale University, and he is the author of For Might and Right, Cold War Defense Spending and the Remaking of American Democracy. Mike, thank you so much for joining us from beautiful New Haven. Well, well thank you, Danny. Longtime <laughs> prestige head. So, so thanks for having me on. Yeah. We're stoked to have you. So why don't we just get into it? We're here to talk about your book, which I think is honestly one of the most important books written in, in our field in the last few years, because it really discusses the, uh, the connection between defense spending and American democracy. But before we get into the content of the book, why don't we talk about what the literature, where the literature stood when you started writing this book, how many books have there been written about the military-industrial complex? Because to my mind, as someone in the field, this is not a well-covered piece of territory, which is somewhat ironic, and maybe you could talk about why you think that's the case. When he says in the field, we're the official podcast of Northrop Grumman, just... (laughs) Yeah, the field of defense contractors. Right. (laughs) Getting to get some emails, right? So yeah, Denny, I I would completely agree with you that histories of the military-industrial complex, histories uh, of national security states are very few uh, and and far between. I would say that's primarily but not exclusively due to the fact that historians of U.S. foreign relations uh, have been interested in, for the past 20 years or so, certainly I've been in graduate school, which was in 2007, 2008. 2008, you know, 2007, I entered graduate school. Uh, they've been concerned with decentering the history of the United States from, from global affairs. And what we mean by that is that the focus has been amongst historians uh, on looking at the ways that the United States was just one nation amongst many nations. And so we don't need to look at, therefore, the state or the history of the, of the national security state. And in specific terms, we should look at other aspects that are outside of the United States that make uh, help us make sense of of empire and global relations. And and when I came to graduate school, that's still that was that was all the rage. And probably yeah, is, we entered the same year, same same. Yeah. We entered in 07 and everyone was doing transnational history. And yeah, mm-hmm. everyone and everyone's kind of well, not everyone, but a lot of people are still doing that work. And it's interesting work, but in my view, didn't ex- didn't answer questions that I had about how this institution came to be, how the military industrial complex came to be, and why people are invested in it, either in, in conspicuous overt ways or, or inconspicuous ways, like why people allow this very undemocratic, anti-democratic institution to exist within a democracy. Uh, and I thought I could answer this question by looking at sort of the political outcomes and the ramifications of the national security state or the military industrial complex uh, and so I consider myself very much like a, a political historian of diplomatic history, uh, someone who thinks that political questions can be answered through diplomatic or, or U.S. foreign policy. And that to me was what was central in, in sort of writing the book was that I could hopefully figure out, one, how the military complex functioned, why people uh, support it or how people are employed by it and then support it, and then 
why it still perpetuates itself to this day, which is, you know, something that I think we should all be asking, I'll be asking, but very few historians weren't, were asking at the time. Yeah. I mean, I would say it's not uh, the rage of the field anyway. I mean, why do you, before we get into your book, why do you think there was that turn? And, and, and in particular, why do you think it was so dominant? I mean, I heard someone once pejoratively refer to it, and I think this is not quite fair, but as like history by Davos, you know, like borderless <laughs> world, right. you know, flows, capital, people. I mean, and, and to put make it more serious, it does seem to be an artifact of neoliberal globalization, right? It is in some sense the historical instantiation of neoliberal globalization. Borders don't matter. Nation states don't matter. It's all about flows and all of these things. Um, and obviously, I don't think many of the historians who do that work would say that, and, and they're probably right to some degree. But as someone who came in right. the field literally the same exact month that I did, why do you think that that approach was so dominant um, particularly on the eve of the financial crash, on on post Iraq War, post Afghanistan War, uh, moments when it was very clear that U.S. national power is a driving force mm -hmm. of IR. Um, I'm just curious if you've thought about this or had any ideas. Yeah, I, I well, to, first I didn't actually think about it too much when I was in grad school because like, oh, I just you know wh whatever. This is just the state of the field. But then as the financial crisis happened and unfolded as their war in Iraq continued to spiral into a quagmire and things got worse in Afghanistan. Um, these questions of what the state was doing became more important and why they weren't addressed. I, I, I would agree. I would, this is going to sound perhaps bad, but I, I thought it was a way that, that what happened was, was historians were adopting some in some way, this this premise that the state can't do anything, right? So, what, like the the state is is not a way, or the American state is understanding it is, is not a way to find out how power function because they'd kind of given up on that the fact that, or we as a people, uh, as a, as Americans, I can't given up on the fact that the state um, is um, can serve any broader good. And, and so we didn't need to really investigate that, like the collapse of neo, uh, New Deal liberalism, the collapse of great society liberalism. You have Bush, George W. Bush, right, in power. Uh, his policies, obviously, to many of your listeners, they might already know, but trying to privatize Social Security, right, the, the, the reign of conservatism, or, or at least so-called conservatives um, in power, those ideas had percolated somehow within the historical profession. And so it was better to kind of study things outside the state because we don't need to understand the state because it doesn't do any good. I don't know if that makes sense, but, but the adopting of neoliberal premises of some way, in some way, I think is what you're saying. And I, I would agree too, that there was sort of this anti-statist assumption within the historical profession uh, that that sort of echoed, you know, in, in and it's ways. also like I don't know if you agree with this, but like neither you or I went to the traditionally top program in um, our field, uh, and, no. and it always also seemed to me that it was a way for super rich universities to compete in the arms race. You know, you go to 4,000 archives all around the world. And I don't think that was yeah. conscious, but that did seem to be like a particularly useful function. Because if you're at Harvard or Yale or Princeton, you could get a ton of money, 
to go right. to the, the the proverbial 18 archives on five continents. I'm, I wonder if someone's ever gotten the full seven. If someone's ever gotten the you know the the 33 archives on all seven continents, someone should really go for that one. <laughs> but uh, I think it also reflect, reflected inequities in the field in an interesting way, right. um, yeah. while also having positive benefits of highlighting non-U.S. agents, which I do think is crucial because the U.S. doesn't make history as it wants. Sure. Um, but it, it's always just to, it's so interesting to me and in, in the era of like U.S. horrible war, our field was decentering the United States' state. It's there's an mm-hmm. irony there to me. I don't know. Well, and the, and the, what's more frustrating now is that the Trump actually hasn't done too much to the state of the field. You know, I mean that that all of Trump to me sort of was a signal of like this of how much this, the state should be the focus of American foreign relations. But once more, um, and that we didn't need to throw out studies of transnationalism or internationalism. Uh, and, but there's no real debates anymore within the field. I would say there's no, there's no real substantive debate, you know, except your piece with Fred Logeval. I mean, that there is to me is not really a, there wasn't really a conversation about how to figure out Trump within, within the broader context of us formulations. Maybe again, I'm doing a disservice to the profession and to the debates in the field. But I, I think to me within, as a political historian too, there there will there was a conversation that didn't happen about what we do to make sense of Trump beyond the fact that he's a fascist or not, or whether he's an autocrat or not. This like how is he representative of state institutions that echo back to the Cold War? And you know, I thought that would be interesting work. And and just work. related to that, and then we'll get into the actual substance of the book. And I'm curious what you think about this. It seems that our field has de-emphasized causality and making causal arguments in general. You know, if you look back in, in in previous eras of diplomatic history, people are arguing about why X happened. You know, and it seems like that is really not what the field as a whole does. And that instead, there's a bunch of different people doing a bunch of different things, but there's no center. And maybe that's good because that that um, allows more diverse subjects to be examined. You don't always have to focus on the state, but I also think by not focusing on causality and central questions, it does, the field as a whole does lose a type of organizing analytic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And then, and then, so I think, you know, as you know, too, this is a, partly a function of the job market. The fact that there are no jobs and everyone's trying to write for trends and for what will appeal to what elite universities universities like mine want at the moment in terms of candidates and there is not an incentive to be i want to say creative but be controversial or be pushing back against the norms because there are so few jobs and so in this age of austerity you're 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 not going to be bold until you're you've got tenure you can write your third book and that's a larger problem i think of the university system and that the crisis of the humanity is that we need to fix is intellectual debate, intellectual progress, even if you want to put in those terms has been stifled because we're all just fighting for scarce resources. Uh, and uh, I see it amongst myself or not amongst myself, but I see it amongst, you know, people who are now coming out of, of, of PhD programs who are postdocs, you know, you know, they're just, they'd want a job and they want a secure job, rightfully so. Um, and not, they're less willing to put themselves out there and engage in, in some fierce controversial debates about not just history, but politics in, in general. And, and I think that's, that's a big problem. 
So, Mike, let's uh, let's get into your book. Um, I, I really appreciated in the intro introduction your discussion of the Seawolf submarine program because I remember the Seawolf uh, vaguely, but it like jarred my memory. I remember it mostly from the kind of debates over it in the post September 11th period, post 2001, when this was like the program was on its sort of dying legs and people were still advocating for it. And it was like, you know, what are we, is Al Qaeda going to get a nuclear submarine that we have to attack? Like, what are we putting, you know, billions of dollars into attack submarines? But there's a much deeper history of this program. And I wonder if sort of uh, the same way you do in the intro to the book, if you could sort of give readers that story and what it says about the topics that you're covering here. Yeah. I mean, the Seawolf submarine, I mean, so it's, it's, um, it's made by, you know, it's made in by General Dynamics in Groton, Connecticut, which is in the other side of Connecticut. Uh, it's on, it's on, it's Eastern Connecticut. And General Dynamics and existed for decades, and and submarine submarine production in Connecticut existed since World War One. And so, uh, the story of of the Sea Wolf is is the story of the Cold War and the story of the Cold War in my book the institutionalization of the military industrial complex. So while, you know, places in Connecticut in the Northeast were sites of submarine production going back to world war one, the cold war is where you get us. And in my view, I think this rightly rightfully so is, is where you get people permanently dependent upon defense production. Uh, and so the sea wolf, I think the sea wolf starts, uh, goes back to the, 80s. I mean, the early 80s and it was under under Reagan and partly the Reagan defense buildup is is um, helping the Sea Wolf. But by the end of the Cold War, as was the case with with many weapons, with, with many things that were made during the Cold War, there is no longer a need for the Sea Wolf to be made, and so you get this controversy in early 90s about the fact that the Bush administration, George H. W. Bush. Uh, wants to eliminate the program because you don't need this Seawolf submarine anymore. You don't. You don't need to have uh, people be dependent upon it, and so on and so forth. And it creates this backlash, which is throughout. My, I mean, throughout my book, I'm telling these stories of backlash against cuts to the defense uh, budget, cuts to defense programs. Mm, but I start with the Seawolf submarine because the the potential elimination of the Seawolf submarine. In Connecticut, which is represented by Democrats, and their reaction to that potential cut of the program is reflecting, in a certain way, sentiments that you wouldn't think would come from Democrats to be more supportive of the military. To be saying like, okay, Chris Dodd, for instance, is is the is the main senator in Connecticut at the time, and he is against Reagan's defense buildup in the 1980s. He's against Reagan's policies in Central America, but. As I say in the book, when it comes to saving the Seawolf submarine, he thinks there's that much more needs to be done. And this, the Seawolf submarine, this one program is saving now security. Uh, and how, we agree. How, yeah, exactly. We agree. How, how dare you let, how dare you let people Bring back lose their the jobs? Wolf. Exactly. There's uh, three of them. We need to, we need to get that much, much, much higher. Right. Yeah. That's what, more, more, more defense spending for, for economic purposes and keeping people in jobs. Anyway. But so he he reacts along with um, his colleague in the in the house to this and and goes and visits the General Dynamics plant where the Sea Wolf was built. He's giving this PR tour, this PR 
pitch. He's on the, on the Senate floor advocating for uh, not cutting the Seawolf submarine. And, and he does actually save the Seawolf program for a few years. And then eventually it gets cut by the, the late 90s and, and I think eventually gets eliminated. But the story there is, is in my view, is at the end of the Cold War, where we don't need this, this submarine anymore, where we don't need to have uh, people be employed by the national security state, the military industrial complex in the same ways. Uh, Democrats, not Republicans, necessarily um, rallying behind this one program and that perpetuating this industry and people's dependency upon it into the post-Cold War period. Uh, and then going backwards is, is, is you know, where I then take the book into the Cold War. All right, Mike, let's get in now a little bit more past the Seawolf, the most important thing that happened in the 20th century, into your book. Um, so where does your book start? And why does it start there? Essentially, why is World War II such a signal moment in this history? I think it's a signal moment because it's where the bipartisan consensus around a need for a permanent uh, defense industry is is created. Uh, and it's it's created in ways that I think were have been neglected by historians in the past, which is to say, I think there's obviously this ideological justification for a permanent national security state, permanent military industrial complex in the threat of communism, right? The global threat of communism, not just the threat of the Soviet Union, but communism more broadly. And that is a consensus that is echoed by Democrats and Republicans. In fact, Democrats are the loudest voices for a, a more of a garrison state, if you will, uh, of a more of universal military training, more weapons, uh, greater greater uh, military presence for the United States abroad, even more so than Republicans who believe that the United States must do more, but think that it can do more through air, its air force and technological superiority. Democrats feel that way too, but they they very much invested in sort of a, if you want to call it this way, sort of in. in Rumsfeldian terms, like a light footprint, you know, if you will, through through American air power. So the idea of shock and awe through through bombing that that's 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 a Republican old Republican idea that goes back to the to the forties. So there's that component, but there's also uh, it, what I thought was neglected. Two things was the story of the Democrats believing that you can in in the nineteen forties or, or late nineteen forties, early nineteen fifties, when you can't get much done. In terms of domestic spending on healthcare, uh, on labor unions, so the Republicans take control of Congress in, in 1947. At that point, they basically kill uh, Harry Truman's uh, fair deal, his 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 ideas for universal healthcare, and other programs that would expand the New Deal. Democrats make the decision, conscious decision, I argue that well, if they can't, if you can't get what you want domestically through uh, this new this fair deal, then then maybe we can at least create jobs and growth through the national security state, through the military industrial complex. That the military industrial complex can can offer full employment, near full employment to many Americans. Uh, and then the consequences of that are in America's increasing Americans' increasing dependency on the military industrial complex for em- employment, and then that leading to shaping their political views about the role of military power and the United States as a global power. And all these things kind of coalesce in the 1940s and early 1950s in ways that make this industry acceptable, normalized, and permanent. 
Can we talk about the connection of the MIC to the New Deal? Because the way that I view it is that it's essentially best understood as New Deal 3.0 or 2.0, depending on whether you, what do you think about the first and so-called second New Deals of the 30s, in the sense that it is informed by the same ideology of public management, it is informed by the same ideology of progressive era rationalization, and is uh, informed by the same ideology of essentially creating centralized government bureaucracies, which are very good when it comes to the domestic world, I think, necessary, um, but take on a whole new valence when attached to this um, American imperial project, or this I would say nascent imperial project, at least when we're talking in terms of the globe in the 1940s. Obviously, America is imperial, I think, at least from the very beginning with westward expansion, the War of 1898, et cetera, but it takes on a new valence in World War II. So what's your take as, as, a, as a historian of political economy on the relationship of you know the, the second group of alphabet soup agencies, the NSC, the DOD, the CEA, uh, the CIA, <laughs> uh, to, to the New Deal? Well, I mean, first and foremost, many of the Cold War liberals who created these institutions were New Deal liberals. I mean, many of them who were involved in the Office of Price Administration, um, Office of War Information, those people who were involved in those institutions that came out of, of the New Deal and, and developed into World War II, that were created during World War II, they would consider themselves to be and were proponents of universal health care, you know, labor unions. Uh, full employment. So they weren't reactionaries, uh, to put it in, in, in terms like they weren't revanchists. Let's put it that way. They weren't conservative figures. Uh, and so the, their politics in, in many ways has changed, of course, with the Cold War in terms of what they see as the enemy. But their institutional memory of the New Deal and World War II uh, is what's informing how they think American power can function in this in this age of limits, right? And I think this is what distinguishes liberalism in the post Cold War period in from New Deal liberalism is like they accept sort of limits to American, I'm gonna say greatness, but the idea that the United States can do ambitious things with the state as it related to the New Deal, like Social Security, and they're tempered by by the cold war and the existential threat that they feel is, is that the United States is, is confronting from communism. And within those limits, they still try to figure out and coordinate where American power can be best utilized to serve social ends. So many of these cold war liberals are, are supportive of the civil rights movement. They're already supportive of like a nascent civil rights movement. They're supportive of greater rights for blacks in the South. Um, they're also again, supportive of economic justice in some form. Uh, and so when you can't get all these things on, on the domestic agenda through New Deal agencies, but you can do it in many ways through these other agencies like that are, that are created out of the Defense Department and, and, and the State Department, uh, it becomes a way in which you sort of rationalize the use of state power and how Americans can see the benefits of, of a national security state uh, as serving this broader good. And so... There, there. In one sense, to answer your question, the institutions that that are created in the Cold War are very much beholden to the New Deal. But at the same time, there's a departure, I think, in how we think those institutions can serve purposes beyond sort of national security. They can actually serve like, economic, social good, which is something that I think is is we're still living with today when we talk about new Cold War and like new Cold War for progress, and you know competition with China as a means of, of, of social progress, that that's a Cold War 
problem, if, if, if you can put in those terms. So how did people arrive at what seems, from some perspectives, a relatively radical conclusion that the only way to get social democracy in the United States is through militarism? And what I mean by that do they think of it as a rearguard action in that there's a conservative establishment that's very anti-statist in some regards, not in all? Um, do they think that this is the only way to do it? Or is there a more positive vision where they think this is the positive way to do it and this is just the way it is? We're going to be permanently mobilized and we're going to get social democratic programs through that. So to build off of that, Mike, I, I'm curious, you know, what direction does the the kind of priority flow is the idea that this is a way to get social progress and jobs is that a justification for the 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 military state or is the military state sort of uh you know justifying this other thing like one of these things seems like it's sort of running cover for the other and i'm curious which which direction that goes yeah, I would say it starts out in the in the 40s as a reactionary position sort of like here's here's how you can you can stymie Republican conservative opposition to your agenda, right? You, you, you can put them on the defensive by saying, I no, we're not weak on communism. You're weak on communism by saying we support all these programs. We support a broader national security state. We support doing much more with American military power. You're the ones who just want to, and it's true. Republicans want to limit budgetary expenditures for defense because they, they feel like Robert Taft, for instance, from Ohio, feels that if you spend too much on the military, you're going to bankrupt the nation. And so the Democrats use the national security state as a cudgel to, 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 to wound Republicans. But over time, as you start to see economic prosperity in the, in the 40s and 50s, again, an anti-democratic institution coinciding with and creating democratic ends, albeit in an, for, for mostly white Americans in suburbia, you get this larger justification that, or not a larger justification, but an increasing justification for why the national security state needs to be permanent. And that comes out of this period of crisis where it's hard, and it's true, there's a lot of research on this by political scientists and historians. It's hard to get a New Deal type package approved by Congress without supermajorities. It's hard to get like a great society. It's really only happened twice in the 1930s from 1933 to 1937, and the 1960s, from 1965 to 1967. That's basically the only times where the United States has had substantive domestic reform as it relates to right, civil rights, economic rights, women's rights, etc. So if you accept those limits and you accept that American power has functions in ways that, that you're serving two purposes. One, you're outcompeting your rivals geopolitically. In the Cold War, obviously, it's Soviet Union and China. Uh, and you're also, too, fulfilling economic purposes, creating jobs, creating economic development in suburban areas, providing people with the means to have social mobility. If you're doing those th two things, and it's much harder to get one independent from the other, then why not have that be a justification for or the explanation for why you need to keep this military industrial complex going. And so in the age of, in 2022, in the age of Joe Biden, when Biden talks about outcompeting China and investing in technology and investing in environmental, you know, green jobs and things like that, and putting those two things together, it's a way of, of again, putting the Republicans on the defensive, saying, 
we're also tough uh, on China, where we have a broader strategy and vision for foreign policy. And at the same time, it's going to serve Americans uh, well, because we're going to be creating jobs and good paying jobs, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I don't know if that makes sense in, in, in terms of putting that together, but that's how I see at least the, the evolution, historical evolution of this and how it echoes in the present. I want to say for a second in the late 40s, because I find that particular period so interesting. And in and, and, and the sense that, from my perspective at least, there was a liminal moment between, four, let's say, May 45 and October 49 when there there wasn't a path dependency here. I think by... By Korea, certainly, but even by the the Soviet acquisition of the nuclear weapon and Mao winning in China, it's very difficult for me to imagine a world in which the United States doesn't become permanently mobilized. I was just curious if you agree with that position, if, the, if there is a world where Henry Wallace doesn't get pushed out, or do you think it was overdetermined by World War II? Is there a hinge point or not, essentially, is what I'm asking. Yeah, I, I mean, I think Stalin's death is a hinge point you know, in many ways, even after that. But I, I would say I go back and forth, right? Because as, as I, I don't want to overdetermine historical events, like nothing is determined in history, otherwise we wouldn't study it. That's, that's boring, right? To say everything's like, well, the, the, the structural forces are too overwhelming. Like there's, there's no, there's no alternatives there. That, that's just, that's just not productive, I think. So I do think that, that there's something to be said about hinge points like Stalin's death in 53, the 48 election, as you're talking about with, with Henry Wallace. But when Harry Truman becomes president in the United States in, in 1945 and in the ways that he becomes president, that to me is, is where things start to immediately go awry. <laughs> you know, I, I think if FDR was president in 45, 46, we would not have had a cold war develop in the ways that we would have had a cold war develop. Let's put it that way. I, I think we still have had conversation with the Soviet Union. There, there still would be tension. Um, but Harry Truman taking office in the ways he takes office, one, being very insecure about his foreign policy experience, which he had none. Um, and he didn't even know about the atomic bomb. Right? Let's put it in those terms, right? He's just basically cut off from, from foreign policy conversations. So there's that. And, and two, just his perception of the war as the United States has won the war. We owe the Soviet Union nothing. You know, whereas FDR had at least some sense, rightfully so, that that the Soviet Union played a huge role in defeating Germany, and that you can't just sort of say carry out your obligations per Yalta and 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 just and give them the middle finger and walk away. Um, and so Truman's bellicosity, his his arrogance at times, that does not spell well for diplomatic relations between the Soviet Union and the United States, and and it doesn't spell well for. Um, how the Soviet Union react to him. Um, and yes, Stalin obviously has some role to, to blame too. This is not just like a, a US-led story. But I think that event puts things in motion in ways that by the time you get to 48, Wallace and, and his supporters are just up against so much structural you know, impediments to alternative vision of foreign policy that it, it just it's just too much. And then Kennan's long telegram in 46, I mean, all of these things, which you know about, I mean, there's already a grand strategy of containment in place. That grand strategy has, pre, has echoed preconceived biases about how American power should function and what the Soviet is as a nation and its behavior. It's, it's an analogy to, World War, to, to Hitler and to Germany during World War II. All those things, I think, make it very difficult to conceive of an alternative but that's the job of, I think, of us as historians is to, 
is to say, which I try to do in that in the 40s, to say there was an alternative. This consensus was formed, but it didn't have to be formed. It's just all these pieces have to be in place, and they were in place, unfortunately. And that's the outcome you get, is you get permanent military-industrial complex. Hey, everyone. It's Jake here, just plugging our Substack, AmericanPrestigePod.com. There you can sign up for the free list or become a paid subscriber, where you'll get an extra full episode plus a mini episode every week. Plus, you can check out all our archives, reading lists, series, etc. So, AmericanPrestigePod.com. Thanks. So, is your book follow the traditional narrative where NSC 68 is really the moment that things get institutionalized? It's, for me, it's it's Korea. So NC-68 comes before Korea, right? So Yeah, it's Korea, April, and Korea's April. June, I believe. Right, yeah. right. And of and 1950. So, NSC-68, this very important National Security Council memorandum, which essentially says the U.S. needs to be permanently mobilized uh, and spend a lot more on on um, on its, its military-industrial complex. Then Korea happens in June. And then the, the general narrative is that this basically gives a shot in the arm to NSC-68, and that becomes a policy planning document that's followed by the U.S. Is that basically correct? It's correct to a certain extent, but I would say what I was interested in the book was sort of why people continue to invest in the defense industry as a place of social mobility and jobs, right? So what I point to in the book is the fact that what Korea does is it brings defense spending, and this is never a good metric, but it's the metric that everyone uses. So defense spending as a percentage of GDP, Right, which is right now is 3.7, but that's misleading for all sorts of reasons we can get into. But in Korea, near 15% of GDP is military spending. World War II, it's about, I think, 44% of GDP. And you, know, you have a, the states at, at a total war capacity. But after the war, it drops like five or six percent or seven percent. Korea brings it back up to 15%, where it will never go a- again. And I think what that does, in, and Harry Truman's policies during the Korean War these policies called the defense manpower acts and and defense mobilization policies where he is deliberately trying to steer defense contracts into depressed districts that need jobs that need growth Um, not just saying well ford gets a contract or you know general motors gets a contract to build planes but saying okay you can point to depressed areas in pennsylvania and we're going to send defense dollars there what that does for people is that they say, well, I want a piece of that pie, right? I want to be able to get those jobs. Those are good paying jobs, et cetera, often union jobs. Um, and so w- when that war, when the war goes away in 53, when the Korean War ends, there's obviously a drop in the defense budget. People want those jobs back. They want the institutions back that gave them opportunities. And I saw that in the letters that were written to Truman at the time and congressional officials at the time saying, you know, I heard my brother got this job in, in this part of the country, New York. Why can't I get that job? Or I'm in farming and farming is not very productive industry in my, in my area. I want to go into Boeing factories and get a job at Boeing. Why can't you get me that? And when that doesn't happen or what does, doesn't materialize in the ways that you want, you obviously get upset. You get in, in a personal way, but you feel disenfranchised. And that provides democratic support in some ways for why this military industrial complex needs to keep going is because it can provide jobs, it can provide growth, and that that reaction accepts a certain narrative about how the military industrial complex can function. And so that brings us into the 60s when we get this going in, in, in more ways. 
So, Mike, before we move on chronologically, I want to ask you about two big questions. One, can we talk about the government contract? Because I think this is really the key mechanism of, quote unquote, public-private partnerships, which is really how the American state has functioned for much of the 20th century. And the contract is is a really crucial mechanism. So, can we talk about that in the context of public-private? And then we've got to talk about the elephant in the room, and that is labor unions and their relationship to the security state. So let's start with the contract. Yeah, I mean, so, so I mean, the way government contracts function in general terms for, for defense is that as the, the government decide that you need whatever, 5,000 planes built uh, for the purposes of engaging in, you know, firebombing of Japan, whatever you need, whatever, whatever military mission uh, theoretically you can come up with, you need to have X amount of planes produced, X amount of ordnance produced. And so you would then as the government turn to, because you can't do that as the federal government, you don't have the institutions to do that. You would then turn to a company who is in the business of either one making planes ideally, or can be converted into making planes. So this was the case during World War II, where you have Ford Motor Company converting its plants into making planes into making a material that would go into the war. And so the federal government provides a contract to Ford Motor Company to produce X amount of planes for the war effort within a certain amount of time. And theoretically, that's how it works. So it's a seamless transaction. The government gets its planes, you know, Ford Motor Company gets its millions of dollars that it was promised by the government in the time that it deliver the planes, the process is efficient, and then the United States has is now able to win the war. That's kind of the dominant narrative of how contracts work, right? But we can get into this, of course, but that's not often how, how the contracting regime or contracting process for defense plays out in real life. This just Let's not talk about that a little bit. Let's talk sure. about that thematically a little bit, and then we'll get into unions. Yeah, I mean, so, so often the ways that defense contracts work in real life is you get a situation or you have a situation where first companies bid to the government for what the government wants. So if government says we're going to produce F-35s, again, this is just a hypothetical. We're going to produce F-35 planes. Um, several defense contractors will say, well, we can build F-35s at this cost and give them to the government. You know, they, they can be operational and ready for deployment in five years, theoretically, again. So Lockheed will say this, Lockheed will say, we can produce in three years X amount of planes that you want for this amount. But then Boeing will say, well, we can produce more planes in fewer years uh, and for maybe slightly more or something like that. So the government looks at the contractors who bid and they go they go with a contract that can deliver what they want in the shortest amount of time for, for the cheapest cost. And so you have this contract that, again, promises to deliver on time. But there's no accountability beyond that, <laughs> which is to say that the defense contractors that are producing F-35s, and I use this as, a, as an example, aren't accountable to the government for cost overruns. Um, so the government will say, well, we, we, want, we only want to pay you know, $50 million for, for these amount of planes. Well, then the defense contractor can turn around and say, I'm sorry, but it's costing us $100 million. And it's going to also be delivered two years later than they expected. The government has no recourse. They don't have. They don't do anything really. Um, the, the DoD doesn't have any recourse. And so, 
often what that means is that defense contractors take advantage of this process and they allow cost overruns, uh, which are endemic to the system. They allow delays in production for whatever reasons, technological, right, manufacturer, whatever, whatever be the reason for the delay. And so that means, as is the case, your tax dollars are going to support this industry going to produce F-35s. Your tax dollars are, are being spent increasingly more on this plane, on this contract. And you as a citizen, as a taxpayer, have no accountability to that. And the government doesn't either. So defense contractors function often with impunity um, as it relates to this contracting regime. And it's a zero-sum game where if you get a contract for this you know, plane and that other part of the country doesn't, then that other part of the country is out of luck. Sorry. And so within this competitive atmosphere and structure, it means ultimately like people lose out, there's great inequality, and your money's not being used efficiently and to the detriment of, I would argue, now security. But anyway. But Mike, capitalism allocates resources efficiently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Strike everything yeah, I said, on, man. Let's strike everything I said. You know? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> sorry to tell you that, but just, so oh, let's man. end on this Shoot. on this topic, which Shoot. is one of the most apocalyptic decisions of 20th century history, and that's U.S. organized labor is selling out to the yeah. defense industrial complex. So, could you maybe talk a, a bit about whether I'm right with that negative assessment, whether I'm wrong, or what happens in the 40s and the 50s where the U.S. worker becomes tied quite quite significantly to the American military state? Yeah, I, I, I mean, the the problem is again, it's the one that. Democrats confront too. It's a, like labor unions are increasingly on a defensive position after the after the war. Um, the height of of union membership is in the early 1950s, but after after Taft Hartley in 1947, which allows right to work uh, states, it just in, in many ways, not always, but many ways, guts the power of unions. Labor is in a position where they're increasingly forced into these kind of like bureaucratic, you know, management negotiations over pieces of the pie. So the idea of like the wildcat strike, more militant measures undertaken by labor unions in the thirties, for instance, uh, under the new deal during the great depression, those start to go away as you start to see overall, I would say unions being, being put in, in a delicate and defensive position after the 1940s, after the mid-1940s. And so within that context, and the fact that Democrats have kind of given up on strengthening labor unions, when you have this Republican reaction, you have Republican majority in Congress and, and, and McCarthyism, right, which we should have mentioned earlier, but or I should have mentioned earlier. All these things mean when, when labor unions are being investigated for having ties to communism, to our communists, all these things are, are spelt it's bad for unions. And so they make a rational decision, right? It's not an irrational decision. It's a rational decision, which is to say people within the UAW, for instance, of Walter Ruther, the head of UAW says, well, my workers in the UAW need jobs. We can get them through defense production. That's what we want. And they start adopting ideological, anti-communism is an ideological justification for those material benefits that the national security state can provide. And so that story is not, it's, again, it's not a happy story, of course. It's not a great story, but I think it, it makes sense. And so 
what you start to see then by in the 40s and 50s is labor understanding that it can't be radical or can't be as radical as it was in the 30s. It has to work within the management regime. When George Meany becomes head of AFL-CIO, uh, for instance, Meany is sort of the quintessential character who is, is like the, the labor boss and fights hard for his workers, fights for union members, but is dedicated to anti-communism and dedicated to the Cold War mission of the United States, stamping out communism, knowing that also it provides jobs for AFL-CIO members, the International Association of Machinists, which is, which is in the AFL-CIO, which represents a lot of, of defense workers. So that, you know, we don't have to get into this now, but I think into the 1960s and 1970s, as it becomes evident because of Vietnam that the United States can't fight the Cold War in the same ways, that there'd be fewer jobs for workers, that this institution is not going to last in the same ways then you start to see alternatives proposed by labor unions of defense conversion, converting jobs into from defense into civilian production, ideas of, of getting workers off of the, of the military industrial complex. But in the 40s and 50s, again, this sort of age of limits, when you start to embrace limits that the United States um, has put, has, as, it, as policymakers would say, have, it, have it put upon, that communism has put upon them, they that is labor starts to make this calculation that it's in our best interest to work within that security state as opposed to work against it. And they all lived happily ever after. <laughs> yeah. Mike Brennis of Yale University, thank you so much for joining us and we look forward to having you back soon. Thank you, Danny. Thank you, Derek. Pleasure.